Hi, and welcome to another episode of That Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Bo. And we're joined by two guests today. Um, we're going to be talking about Tailwind CSS with Adam Wathen and Jonathan Renink. Have I said that correctly, Jonathan? Yeah, you got it. Ah, uh, cool. So um, I'm 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 fairly familiar with like the concepts of Tailwind, but I don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, do you want to, one of you want to give us a, a really quick um, intro to it, or to, maybe intro yourselves quickly as well, just so people know who you are? Sure. So uh, I'm Adam Wathen. Uh, I built Tailwind with Jonathan. I'm a PHP uh, developer who works for myself, creating kind of like training products like eBooks and video courses and stuff, and then working on open source stuff like this as much as I can on the side. Uh, Jonathan, you want to introduce yourself, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about Tailwind. Yeah, I'm uh, similar to Adam. I work for myself, uh, not quite in the same way. I don't have. Uh, really the the same my own products like adam does i still do a lot of client work which is great um and uh, yeah i've been writing php for quite a long time that's sort of my area of focus although adam uh pulled me in to work on some css stuff again which was fun i uh, i worked at an agency for about a about a decade so i did a lot of front end work there and the last few years i've been doing more more app development, a lot more server-side stuff. So getting back into the front end and making Tailwind and doing a lot of this front-end stuff again has been a lot of fun. Cool. So I guess like the pitch for Tailwind is basically it's a CSS framework whose core mission is to make it easy for you to design more custom like bespoke user interfaces by whatever means are necessary to sort of enable that vision right so a lot of the existing css frameworks out there that you might have played with like bootstrap or zurb foundation or bulma or semantic ui or a lot of these other tools are fairly opinionated about um, how things sort of look out of the box um, it's pretty easy to tell when a site is like a bootstrap site, for example, right? Like that's kind of like a look It's like, Oh, that's a bootstrap site or that's a foundation site. And of course there's things that you can do to, to customize those tools and try to make things look a little bit more like your own. And I know there's lots of big sites out there that have sort of built their product around a tool like bootstrap but customize it like heroku is a great example for the longest time their sort of in-house css framework was based on bootstrap and they never really looked like a bootstrap site per se um but it's a lot of work to customize these things and customization never really feels like a really first class citizen in a lot of these tools like if you want to learn how to customize bootstrap most of the time that means diving around in their like source sas files on sort of reverse engineering like what variables are causing this to look like this or this to look like this um so there's a lot that you can do there but i've personally found that as i've sort of built up like my own little toolkit of styles to bring around from project to project um more and more the only classes that i was creating that managed to like survive that transition between projects were stuff that was like really really low level like utilities for aligning text utilities for setting this to be a flex container instead of like a block container or um making something italic or changing the color of some text or adding some spacing around something. Um, those were the only sorts of styles that I was like successfully porting between projects without having to like 
change them because every single project that I've worked on, like the button styles are different on each one. Like maybe buttons have a box shadow on this project and maybe buttons have a border on this project and maybe buttons only have a bottom border on this project. Um, so it was uh, it was always hard to try and create these like component level abstractions that were really easy to sort of carry around between projects. So what we ended up doing with Tailwind is basically just building out a suite of these really low-level uh, utilities for mostly just manipulating single CSS properties. And it's not really a new idea. There's other frameworks out there that kind of are designed to help you work the same way, like Tachyons or Beard or Base CSS. Um, but in trying to like work with those tools, I found limitations personally from the customization perspective uh, again. Uh, because a lot of them are just not built with customization in mind. It's like a first-class citizen. So we built Tailwind as like, originally it was a less framework, which was hell. And then we rewrote the whole thing as a post-CSS plugin. So now it's like a CSS framework that contains no CSS in the actual source code. Everything is JavaScript that generates CSS. Uh, but it means like um, you have the utmost power available to you in terms of, of customizing things so we can talk a little bit more about like how that actually works from like a like a hands-on practical perspective but from like a sort of high level um, overview that's kind of like the philosophy uh, behind the framework anyways it's basically low level stuff that um, you know is as project agnostic as possible uh, that lets you sort of compose components and designs in your markup without basically ever having to write CSS um, unless you build these sort of custom user interfaces really quickly by working all in one place without losing context, without worrying about coming up with names for things uh, until you want to maybe go back and extract different concepts or things that are easier to reuse later. And we have all sorts of tooling and stuff to make that easier that we can talk about more too. Yeah, I think that uh, Adam, you once described, you once described Tailwind as almost like a a tool to create a framework or a tool to create your own custom framework. So it's yeah. not even like a framework on its own. It's more of a tool to create a framework for your project, which I think is a useful way of looking at it. Do you know, do you know that's exactly how I was thinking earlier? Um, because I, in my literal five minutes of preparation for this podcast, <laughs> I went to have a look and I went to have a look to see if you guys called it a framework or a library. Because when I, from what I've seen of what the CSS that's generated it looks more like a library than a framework. You know, you've got, because when I think framework, I think like you get the most benefits from using it all together. Whereas when I looked at what, um, what Tailwind spits out, it looks more like a set of component or set of li a library of things that you could use one little piece of and not really care for the rest. Or, mm. But then I, when I, when I dug into how it works, it actually sprung up me that it looks actually like a framework for creating libraries and yeah. is how I thought about <laughs> it in my head. And it, yeah, so just what you said then, Jonathan, that really resonated with my thinking so far. Um, I, could you, um, you talked about customizations. So what kind of things can you customize? Sure. So um, customizing the framework kind of happens in this one big configuration file that you generate with like our CLI utility. And what you end up with is like a big ass JavaScript file, not like a JSON file or, you know, some configuration format, literally like a JavaScript module. Um, so you can do anything you want in there uh, that's meant to export just this big JavaScript object. And that JavaScript object contains 
like a list of all the colors that you want to be able to use in your project with like names and values, which can be whatever you want. Like they can be RGB, they can be hex, HSL, whatever. Um, it lets you spit out like a list of the font families, like the font stacks that you want to use, as well as like what you want to name those as. So the general format of this config file is like there's a bunch of sections and each section kind of has like it's usually like a scale or just like a list. Right. So in the, in the case of like your font sizes, you can think of that as a scale. We have a list of all the different font sizes that you want to be available in your project. And each one sort of has a name and a value. And the name is uh like a modifier that gets stuck onto the end of like a consistent prefix for that set of classes. So for like font sizes, for example, all the font size utilities start with text dash, and then you basically configure this list of font sizes that you want to have where by default we have like SM base LG XL 2XL 3XL 4XL I think maybe 5XL and those generate classes now like text dash SM text dash base text dash LG and those map to you know whatever the values that you've set out are um, so you can customize like font sizes font families um, all the different font colors that you want to be able to have available for tweaking the color of your text the font weights that you want to have available um, so you can sort of constrain that right so yeah you can have between 100 and 900 typically for your font weights but on most projects you maybe are using three font weights so you can sort of constrain that to the three that you want to have available and name them in a way that makes sense for you like maybe you have light normal and bold and depending on the font that maps a different weight um, you can configure your, like, your spacing scales so like which values are available for padding helpers margin helpers negative margin helpers your z index scale um background colors border radiuses border widths uh i don't know there's basically anything in there that makes sense to be able to customize um can be customized so you can almost think of this like javascript object that's exported from this file as almost like um your sort of like your design system or style guide for like a project it contains like all the values that you ever want someone to be able to use so it makes it easy to constrain yourself to a limited set of choices so someone's not writing custom css where they're like uh this should have 11 pixels of padding and this thing should have 0.7 m of padding and this thing should have 1.2 rem of padding um you're just sort of forced to stick to this set of scales so you're choosing from like a menu of options all the time instead of just like writing freeform css um so it makes it a lot easier to make quick decisions it makes it easier to design in the browser because all these kind of options exist for you uh, already and then the other thing that's nice about this being just like a javascript file is you can do anything you want with it right there's all sorts of npm packages you can pull in for doing like css color manipulation so if you want to make a bunch of colors that are relative to each other you can just npm install color you get the color package you require it in this module and now you can darken colors lighten colors change the alpha channel of colors um you can use lodash to help you uh reuse things so like say you want to just define like one spacing scale you can just make a variable called spacing scale and then you assign that to padding margin and negative margin and now it's shared so it's just nice because you have like the full power of like a regular programming language and you can solve any sorts of duplication problems or dependency problems or making things relative to each other the exact same that you would or sorry the exact same way that you would in a normal programming environment because that's what you're in that sounds good um there's a question so in practice, then, how, how have you found uh, 
say you've given you've you've got a scale for text sizes and you find that you you need another one um in practice how has that gone do you do you do you add to or do you change the the scale and see how it goes see how it looks across the range of your site or, or how do we do that i mean i'm I think I'm my background is CSS. I'm I'm a bit of a I'm a back end programmer who knows enough CSS to be dangerous. Yeah, and um, uh, that's the kind of thing I struggle with. Is you know when you've got that thing where you need you feel like you need a specific style for this, and you try and I try and like shoehorn it into the existing styles and stuff, and I end up might knocking something else out elsewhere in the site or I change this here and it looks great on this page but then I switch over to that page and it looks awful so yeah. well, how, how have you found that in practice using these sort of scales yeah so there's a couple different situations that we kind of solve in different ways so in cases for like font size I think the best approach is to be pretty liberal with what you provide yourself at the beginning um, so the generated config file that you generate we provide a lot of what we think are sensible default values that are unopinionated in terms of like how your projects can actually look, uh, but opinionated enough such that you have enough constraints for the constraints to be useful. So I think our, our type scale is like 12 pixels, 14 pixels, 16, 18, 20, 24, uh, 32, 48, maybe it's 36, something like that. So there's enough values there where, um, it would be really weird for you to want something else, I think, especially at like kind of the smaller end, right? Like if I would never on a project want to have 14 pixel font somewhere, 15 pixel font somewhere, 16 pixel and 13 pixel, like they're just too close together. You know what I mean? I either, uh, I'm going to pick, it's either 14 or 16. If 15 looks the best, like too bad because it's really weird to have two fonts that are one pixel off in size. It just feels like you're not following a system anymore. So in those cases, I think you end up in a pretty decent spot by just making sure that you're not trying to like, um, like over optimize at the beginning by like trying to over constrain yourself. You know, you want to try and find the right balance of giving yourself enough stuff at the beginning to be safe. Because in those sorts of situations, if you want to add a text size between um, large and extra large, well, what are you going to name it? You have no options, right? You either have to go through and change all your existing extra large to two extra large, all the existing two XL to three XL. And obviously that's a nightmare. Um, in other cases, where it's more likely that you might want to add something in between. We've tried to name things using like a proportional scale. So like margins, for example, we don't use like character based names. So it's not like margin, small margin, medium margin, large uh, we use numbers. So it's like margin zero, one, two, three, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 16, 20, 24, something like that. And it's all proportional. So like margin four is always going to be twice as much as margin two and margin six is going to be 1.5 times as much as margin four. So if you ever find yourself in a situation where it's like, oh, I need something, uh, margin four is too small and margin six is too large. Well, we, that gap exists in the scale for you to slot five in there if you need to, or 5.5 or 5.25, uh, because it's proportional. So we originally had it differently where it was just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever. And the, the difference between each number was not proportional, right? So maybe like seven was 1.5 times as large as six, 
But then if you want to slot something in between, now things get like really hairy. So in those situations, we tried to be careful to design it and encourage like a naming convention that kept things proportional. So you have room to slot things in if you ever need to add extra ones. It's probably worth mentioning too that those scales are like there's a default scale that we provide, but it's completely customizable. So if you did feel like you wanted a... Uh, a character-based scale, or if you wanted to say use small, medium, large, extra large, you know, for for something that we currently have as a numeric scale, like that's like totally, totally open to you. So like the default, we what we provide in the default config is what we think is like a pretty good starting point. But if, if it doesn't really fit with the way you think or the way you like to work, then you can absolutely change it. That all sounds really good. So, t- talking about these scales, I'm curious how how, e- how easy it is to work with um, something like vertical rhythm with Hailwind. So that's like something that I've heard people talk about that I've struggled to understand in a web context, honestly. So, when you say vertical rhythm, do you mean like like a baseline gr- vertical grid where you're sort of like dividing the screen up with like imagining like horizontal lines at like different. Sp- bases or does it mean something different than that it sort of means that but it sort of goes along with what you're saying where things are proportional um for example choosing font sizes that are just 12 14 16 18 24 you're picking those arbitrarily as opposed to plugging in some numbers into a scale and then having it generate the, the 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 more pleasing visually um patterns are maybe 13 pixels 15.25 15.25 pixels you know sure. you, you get this whole thing and then you deal with the the padding and the margin based on that so that the line height needs to be a multiple of the vertical rhythm yeah of the vertical scale so it, it is sort of you know vertical lines that you're trying to to, to match up yeah but if, yeah yeah i've definitely seen tools for doing like there's like a modular scale tool that i've seen where you can like mm-hmm. generate font sizes based on like minor thirds or like diminished fifths you know this fancy stuff golden ratio and and, yeah yeah. which is cool i think but the thing that i can't get past is that you get all these fractional values out that the browser can't even render properly that render differently in different browsers based on how things might round different values differently Mm -hmm. um so i think I've seen examples in practice where people will use like a modular scale, see the output and then sort of manually round those values to like where they would want them to be rounded to and then like use fixed values like that. And um, you can totally do that, which is like why uh, some of the the stuff is as customizable uh, as it is. Uh, But out of the box, I think we are probably like a bit more generous with the values that we provide than you would get by generating them from like a modular Mm -hmm. scale. Uh, because if you're generating something from a modular scale, my experiences anyways, when I've tried to, to do things that way is I still f- run into situations where it's like, ah, I want a font size between these two because these are like 10 pixels apart and I would really yeah. want one that sits in between. But, you know, the fancy like drinking from your <laughs> champagne glass, twirling your mustache mathematics doesn't generate that value for you. Right. Um so, yeah, so, so I don't know. I think yeah. it's it's interesting and it's totally possible to mm-hmm. to use a scale like that uh, with mm-hmm. with Tailwind. But personally, I just haven't found it to give me um, results or an experience that I've found to be better than just picking sensible values yeah. that seem practical just for the it. things I'm building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just just on that point, um, 
you know, finding things that are in between two values. Um, the I think the modular scale tool actually lets you put two base numbers in. So it can generate things at two different scales so that it gives you a little more options. Um, yeah. beca- because I, I've, run in, I've run into that in the past when I've tried to use it where the jump between two levels is too big. Uh, so you, you pick a different starting base point that gives you a few more options in there. Um, but yeah, it is something that, you know, I, I, I actually did a, a search for vertical rhythm and tailwind because I was just curious if how that was. And I, I found an issue on it, but I didn't really see much other discussion on it. So I didn't know if that was something that was on your radar or something that you you even do yourselves, either of you. Yeah. yeah I think again, that like- sometimes... I was just going to say, I think that sometimes people people go too far with kind of how scientific they want to get with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like picking colors. Like, there's all sorts of color generation tools out there where you give it like this base color and it'll it'll spit out this whole palette of colors for you and based on some sort of crazy math. And mm-hmm. in my experience, it those tools, they're, they're helpful as a starting point, but I sort of still find myself saying, no, I want to handpick my colors and I and even though the math may be slightly wrong on it, like there, it's visually pleasing to my eyes to use mm-hmm. different colors than what the computer is telling me to use. So I find these sort of like tools interesting, but I think you got to be careful not to pull the human element and the you know yeah. the human you know that not just that eye you know for for it out, mm-hmm. out of it. Yeah. So um, one of the things that also comes into play is the the use case like where are you using it um if you're building a blog or maybe a documentation site or something like that something like vertical rhythm might make more sense because it's more it's easier to read versus uh building a, an application where you're building little widgets and things like that it probably doesn't make as much sense um but if you're trying to use the same code to build your front-end marketing site that also has your app built into it, then sometimes these things sort of collide and you have to pay a little more attention to them if, if you care about that. For sure. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, um, so how's, how, how are you finding adoption? I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've, I'm sure I saw thousands of stars on GitHub and how, how are you finding that? It's been pretty wild actually. Um, I didn't expect it to sort of take off the way that it has, but we have like a very active Slack community with, I don't know, let's see, there's 400 people in Slack and there's conversations happening all day, every day, which is really cool. And we have like this little message board thing that we tried to hack into GitHub issues, uh, which doesn't get used as much as, as Slack does, even though it's probably the better place to have these sorts of conversations. But I'm always hearing from people um, building sites, sending me the stuff that they've built people have created like um other sites for hosting like components that people have built with tailwind um so it's it's pretty awesome like i have a lot of people that i hear from using it that don't know who i am from the communities that i'm already in even so like for example sometimes in the tailwind slack someone will like at mention me and ask me like a Laravel question because they know that I'm like paying attention to the Slack and they kind of just want (laughs) to bug me about something unrelated and people will reply like, what the hell are you talking about? What is, (laughs) what is that? Because they don't write PHP. They don't know what Laravel is or whatever, but somehow they've, they heard about Tailwind and are using it and, and enjoying working with it. Um, so yeah, it's been pretty, pretty good actually. And it seems to not really be showing many signs of slowing down and, I mean, I think a lot of that also comes from the fact that uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to spend like a decent amount of time on it, uh, you know, 
adding features and merging pull requests on top of building out little demos and doing what I can to sort of um, promote the framework and stuff too. Uh, but it's definitely been been pretty wild. Like we're closing in on having as many GitHub stars as Tachyons, which I think w- would be probably considered the most popular um, sort of atomic CSS framework out there. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. It's 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 pretty wild. Hopefully, hopefully it keeps growing because we got plans for some more interesting things that we want to do with it. But yeah, I, I definitely have been uh, pretty uh, blown away by the response so far. So. I, I kind of want to poke some fun maybe here because you start you started off by saying you didn't you were surprised by how much it's taken off but as far as i can tell y'all sort of treated this as a product launch i mean sure. like would, would you have made a tailwindcss.com website that was going to drop on a specific day if you didn't expect it to sort of have some sort of takeoff effect yeah well, i think yeah we definitely like, like um did what we could to uh, you know, make the kind of adoption and launch of it uh, successful um, for sure. So that said, I, I'm still surprised at like how much I'm hearing from people who uh, are in totally different communities and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't just, so, so that's really cool. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's not like I open sourced something and people like accidentally found this repository <laughs> and it like, or Matt, like, just took off in some crazy way like we definitely put it out there and did what we could to to get it in front of people like it was on product hunt even and stuff like that mm-hmm. so um yeah i don't know we tried to do things right <laughs> yeah that sounds like it's a big hit so far <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm pretty pretty excited about getting to use it at some point um like css and maybe the last six seven years kind of passed me by i've just constantly done enough to keep my work going um it's a right mess um and eventually i I was going to get to the point where i was going to have to rewrite this stuff and i'm i kind of feel like i may have missed the boat quite nicely on a lot of stuff um (laughs) where i've sort of read and got i've you know i'm like i have a vague understanding of things like is it smacks ocss um bem um yeah and then all these tools that came in between like i apart from a little bit of uh customizing some things uh less and sass pretty much passed me by <laughs> you know so i'm thinking i'm hoping now that like something like this this i like the utility sort of nature of it the atomic did you say atomic before yeah yeah there's a couple um, couple kind of labels people have attached to this approach atomic functional utility first is the one that i invented okay <laughs> um, but, well, yeah. all of those work for yeah. me i mean my favorite like i use bootstrap at the minute and my favorite uh style in bootstrap is the text center uh, yeah. you know, that's the one i use the most i think uh, uh so yeah it really appeals to me so i'm hoping like i i want to get in on this and uh and start using it and i and the, it's nice for me to see the the momentum you've gathered as well because it makes me feel m- more confident in making a decision about it rather than all the other things that i don't really understand yeah it's pretty interesting too there's like um there's some pretty decent case studies that you can find case studies in the sense of examples of people who have done this, not so much like fancy written up case studies, but examples of companies that are moving towards this approach uh, too. like Heroku. Again, they had their bootstrap based thing and now they're using a tachyons based um, internal framework, um, which is sort of interesting. And GitHub is the same way. Like their original 
kind of internal CSS toolkit was not based on Bootstrap, but very similar to Bootstrap. And uh, they've moved to something that's a lot more uh, utility-based now as well. And I actually was able to interview um, Diana, who is the design systems sort of lead at GitHub a few months ago for my podcast, uh, where she talked a lot about sort of the benefits that they've been seeing from switching to to this approach. So it's definitely interesting and cool to see like evidence from bigger companies that, you know, this approach has, uh, has value. It's nice to be able to see like when a company like the size of GitHub or the size of Heroku, who have obviously struggled with CSS maintainability at some point because of the size of the organization or uh, size of the organizations and the speed at which they have to move. Uh, the fact that they've landed on these sorts of approaches as the solutions to those problems um, is really good evidence for it being useful. I think one of the things I've seen in the, uh, especially in the React community, maybe not so much the view view community, is a it's moving more in the direction of doing inline styles and inline CSS. Yeah. Um, how, how does that play into something like Tailwind or is it completely incompatible? I think it depends how you're doing it. I've been looking into some of these like CSS and JS libraries a lot more over like the past week. And I think I can say with confidence that if I was building an entirely React app where all my markup was generated by React components, that I would probably right now be working on something that felt like Tailwind that was built on top of a CSS and JS mm-hmm. um, a library. Um, it's really an interesting approach because at the end of the day, yeah, it's it's like even Tailwind is like inline styles in a, a lot of sense, right? Like you're styling what you're building directly on that element. But inline styles have like super limiting kind of limitations. <laughs> like right. you can't do media queries, you can't style hover states, you can't do like pseudo selectors or anything like that. Um, whereas with something like Tailwind, we're giving you like an inline style, like an API for inline styles that still exposes the ability to like responsively change the text alignment or mm. change the background color on hover and stuff like that. And these CSS and JS libraries are sort of designed to to give you that same sort of, of power. Like they still generate classes ultimately at the end of the day so that they can expose these features to you, but you get to work with it in, in a more like inline style um, sort of way. Now I have seen a lot of people are using Tailwind with view, uh, which is kind of cool where you're just pulling in Tailwind as like your a global style sheet and then just dropping in the classes and applying them like you would uh, in any traditional project. But if you wanted to go like full on CSS and JS, uh, Tailwind isn't really going to do anything to to help you there, mm-hmm. but uh, there's definitely some interesting opportunities I think in that space to provide like more design systemy or like constraint based systems on top of like these CSS and JS tools. I think I saw something recently that I can't remember the name of, but I'll look it up and get it in the show notes. Um, but someone who the guy who wrote Base CSS. Brent Jackson, I think his name is, has a library that he's working on that's built on top of styled components, maybe, um, that's designed to kind of give you some of these constraints and make it easier to like use a consistent font scale or something like that. Because the, the thing that scared me with CSS and JS when I first saw it was it felt like you were just writing CSS in the same file that your component is in, which I think is great because 
you have this shared context and you're just working one place but it felt like you were writing these styles in isolation and you're just like i want to make this component look good by any means necessary using whatever values i'm typing into this file um which is interesting i guess but i worry that like you're losing consistency with other components in your application if someone's using ram units here and you're using pixel units and someone else is using m Mm -hmm. uh, you can fall into a lot of the same traps that you do using an approach like uh bem where it feels like you're doing something in some like system systematic sort of organized way but really everything is still like one-off style so there's no enforcement of consistency between them Uh, but Mm -hmm. i think like some of the teams that are using css and js and succeeding with it from like a design systems perspective again because it's all just javascript you can just create a module that exports your type scale and you can import that into all your different components and grab the value from it based on a a named key instead of just using some pixel value right so it's really just about um being diligent i guess as a team to to stick to that stuff and putting some of the tooling in place to make it easier for people to sort of follow these constraints Uh, but yeah i think that's like a really interesting space right now for sure so speaking of uh, design systems and being diligent and being a team you know I, i think we all work for ourselves and or smaller companies where teams are either really small or just yourselves um what, how many of you have had experience with wanting to put in place a design system and, and not getting support from like other developers who really don't even care about these sorts of things? <laughs> like, are, are, have either any of you run into that in the past? I, I don't have any experience with that situation personally. What about you, Jonathan? Yeah, like <clears throat> I would say that... Uh my experience, like we, we have worked for teams or on teams where we've wanted to implement design systems and we have direction from the design lead or even like certain members on the team who are sort of taking care of that piece. But the problem is when you get into the weeds, you know, during the day when you actually just need to crank out that feature, you, unless there's something forcing you to follow those standards, you know, making sure that you get your work done, that sprint ends up becoming more important than making sure you follow that you're following that design standard perfectly. And that's kind of why I find Tailwind interesting because it sort of forces you to follow the design system, at least to a degree, because you don't have a million different options. You can't write any CSS you want. You're basically using these predefined um, utilities. And those are the utilities that you've agreed upon as a team as defined in your configuration file. And that already massively reduces your choices and already leads to a much more consistent overall look, which I think is really, you know, the big difference between using utilities instead of saying, you know, if you could use all inline CSS, like that's really the difference. You're, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's kind of, it, it's a different way of writing CSS. It's a different way of working with CSS, but it's also, a, you know, this, this tool that sort of leads you down a single path. Yeah. I think it's interesting because like what you're really doing by introducing a system like, like tailwind or another utility focused framework is you're sort of changing the paradigm of how you style something in a project. Like traditionally, if you need to change how something looks, the solution is write CSS. But when you're using a framework like this, that's not the solution anymore. So it feels really weird working on a project that's using one of these frameworks to open a CSS file. Like that's like a a signal that like, oh man, I am doing something really (laughs) off the beaten path here that 
I'm getting into weird territory because I'm not really supposed to be editing CSS. Like none of the pull requests that my teammates have open are include CSS changes. You know what I mean? So when like the mentality is like you design something by applying existing classes to it, it becomes a lot harder to introduce new colors or new font sizes or, or stuff like that into the, into the Mm -hmm. product. An interesting tool for this actually is the CSS stats.io or maybe.com. It lets you kind of just paste in a link to a CSS file and it'll count how many different font size declarations there are, how many font colors, how many background colors, as well as all the specificity and stuff. And if you paste in the style sheets from some of these uh, big companies like GitHub, for example, it's like GitLab is my favorite. That's like a complete atrocity. There's like <laughs> 800 background colors or something. And so many of them, you can't tell the difference between when you're looking at on the screen and you know, like what's actually happened in reality is that people are doing things in the SAS or less that feels like they're being smart because they're doing things like, Oh, I need this text to be lighter than the current text color. So I'm going to use like the lighten function and lighten it 10%. And it's like, it feels like some systematic approach because it's based on the original color and it's relative and stuff like that. But somewhere else in another file, someone's lightened that same color 15% and someone else has lightened it 8%. And I have three grays that visually basically look exactly the same, but are different values in the style sheet. So CSS stats is a cool tool for sort of um, noticing those sorts of things. And if you do CSS stats on like a Tailwind project, it looks so clean and like organized um, because like the values are, are very constricted and defined. So that's uh, kind of a cool way to look at things. It is something yeah. though that you'll experience when you first start working with Tailwind. At least that's what I experience is that you do have to figure out some values ahead of time. And probably the most painful values to figure out are your color values. That's even, I think, as we built Tailwind, like, I think colors probably gave us most grief, wouldn't you say, Adam? Like, to figure out even just our default color scale and just to figure out, like, how to do colors, you know, how to name colors, um, how many colors, you you know, you should have of each, say, color, like, how many variations of each color. That's probably the trickiest piece. But once you have that down, it's, like, so empowering because then you just start... You just start creating layouts, you start creating pages, you start creating components, and those pieces are there, and you just go, and you basically stop thinking about the colors. Um, and yeah, so it, it puts a little bit more work sort of on the front end, but then it's like um, done, and you don't have to think about it anymore. I don't think I see it as much now. I think I saw it more kind of uh, when the framework really launched, but it looked like at least some of you, maybe it was just Adam, would basically take some UI somewhere and you take a screenshot of it and see how quickly and easily you could make the same thing in Tailwind. Yeah. Yeah, I was doing that just as like a fun way to sort of demonstrate. Mostly I wanted to be able to prove that like Tailwind projects don't have like a Tailwind look. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like you get with Bootstrap. I wanted to just take things that looked different and show like, okay, let's build this in Tailwind without writing any CSS. So somehow we used the same style sheet to build Coinbase and Slack and they both look mm-hmm. almost identical to the actual products without having to write any custom CSS. And to me, that's just like a really cool way to show like, um, you know, you can make something that looks the way you want it to look. You don't have to worry about being boxed into some really recognizable sort of aesthetic that you might. So to be fair, Coinbase and Slack 
without any CSS, you, you must have done some configuration change, though. Change colors, change no, actually, font scales. I, I, I built both of them using the CDN version of um, Tailwind. That's just pre-compiled. <laughs> um, nice. Now, there's sli- said, subtle differences against the real products. Like The colors aren't exactly the same. Okay. Some of the font sizes aren't exactly the same. But it's mostly about like trying to get them to feel like right. the same, you know? Um, nice. So it's not perfect. It's not pixel for pixel. But uh, it's a it's it's a pretty good fake, you know what I mean? <laughs> are, are you um? Did you have them posted somewhere? Like, are they like collected like on the Tailwind site somewhere or on a yeah, blog? Yeah, I think I ha- I think I have both of them on my CodePen profile. Uh, so okay. I will uh, definitely get you a link to yeah to those two. It, it might be it might be interesting just for general marketing purposes to actually have that on the site. Or something that may make it easy to get to those kinds of examples because I I've, I personally felt like those were pretty powerful to be able to see those. Yeah, I really want to add like a section to the documentation where we have um sort of like fully built templates, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. show you some of the stuff that you can do. Um, it's just not enough time in the day. There's still so many documentation pages that don't have full documentation and stuff. Yeah. Although people do seem to be really happy with the docs, even as, as they are, the important stuff is all there, but uh, nice. we could definitely flush out some more like written up sort of guide style content. So uh, I, I, I believe you're taking uh, additions to the documentation on GitHub as well, right? Yeah, I actually just split out the documentation into its own repo. It all used to be like one big repository. Okay. Um, so it's a little bit easier for people to just file nice. issues against the docs or submit little tweaks I just and got stuff. Tailwind working with uh, Webpack Encore. So I, I want to submit the instructions for how to get that up and running. Yeah. It's pretty similar to Mix, but it was different enough that I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I muddled through that. I was also using SAS. So I ran into um, Webpack Encore has the same problem that Webpack Mix has with um, the, what is it, the CSS URL? Yeah, res- process CSS URL, yeah. like the resolve URL loader thing. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, so Webpack I, I, I is ran into a that too. <laughs> can of worms for sure. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, it would be really cool to add like a whole section of the documentation that is almost just like a kind of configuration recipes for different mm-hmm. tools, right? Like we have instructions for like raw Webpack, raw Gulp, and then like Laravel Mix just because so many people in like the Laravel community were the first ones to get exposed to this and they mm-hmm. all use Mix, so it made sense to do that. But it would be definitely cool to have like... Here's how you set it up with that crazy Rails Webpacker thing. Here's how you can make it work with like Nuxt.js or yeah. uh, Next.js or Ember or any of these mm-hmm. other tools that all have their own crazy build processes already. So, so r- real quick, I had one last question. Um, how much of this was driven or done in in line with uh, refactoring UI? Basically none of it. None of it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the real motivation for it originally was just like I was using Bootstrap for a bunch of sites and then Bootstrap 4 was switching to SaaS and I just like have this personal vendetta against SaaS for <laughs> like there's just no way you could convince me to start using SaaS instead of less. So mm-hmm. I just started writing my own framework in less changing the things that I would have wanted to change about Bootstrap anyways and uh then I started trying to use it on multiple projects, which caused me to make little tweaks to like, 
what things were available, how things were named. So they weren't like as project specific in terms of how components were named. And, you know, as I moved from project to project, the original framework kind of got smaller and smaller as things that didn't make sense to bring over because this project doesn't need something that looks like that went away. Um, But more sort of utilities would get introduced. And I've been talking to Jonathan for the longest time about like how, I feel like I finally have solved my CSS workflow and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll try it even though I'm totally happy with BEM or, or whatever you were doing. Right. And I got Jonathan kind of a copy of this gross last thing that I put together and he was using it on a, a redesign of, of his application. And, um, from there, that's when we really started being able to like figure out how can we make this better and make it work for both of these projects as well as possible and figure out how to create the abstractions that we needed to create and stuff like that. Um, so that was kind of like the motivation for it. And, uh, then Steve, uh, who I do like the refactoring UI stuff with has just helped out a lot in terms of picking colors and helping design the documentation and stuff like that. Um, he hasn't really been involved in like the actual code or anything uh, like that, but just in trying to make sure that the default configuration we provided and stuff, uh, made it easy to m- build nice looking stuff. So I'd been looking at BEM for a while, and I think Jonathan was actually the reason I finally really started to use it and get a little more uh, experience, like actually seeing a real project using it. It was all like theoretical before that. Um, so you're are you not doing that anymore, Jonathan? No. Well, <laughs> I shouldn't say I'm not entirely because I still create the odd component, which mm-hmm. sort of follows a BEM-ish sort of style. Um, but for the most part, no, like, uh, Adams converted me to the, the utility way and, uh, it's been, it's been great. I think the piece that people don't necessarily realize when they first look at it, I think it's easy to look at the utility, uh, workflow or the utility classes and to be disgusted by them. You have (laughs) these HTML files, these view files, the, you know, that are just an atrocity of all these different classes. And you look at that and you're your immediate reaction is how can this be better? Like this feels like a step back, but you really have to try it. And that's what I did. And it's the workflow that I fell in love with. I, I love being able to have that predefined set of classes that I just know are there. They're ready to go. Those predefined set of colors. I love not having to name things. I, I can't stress this enough. That is the worst part of writing regular CSS. <laughs> naming things like that, like we all know naming's hard, and yet we just think that, you know, it's, I don't know what we think. It's just doing BEM. Like BEM is all about naming. Like that's what, the, yeah. that's what it is. <laughs> but naming is just terrible, and you it, it, it basically cripples you. It, so with with utilities, you just avoid it. You just don't name things. You just put the classes in there that you need. Um, and every once in a while, you do have something that you say, well, no, this really doesn't make sense to repeat over and over and over. So I'm going to package that up into some sort of named component. But it's sort of that way. You start without the component. You work without the component. You add it when it feels like, okay, I've got too much duplication here. I, I want to kind of package that up. As opposed to the other way around where you, you always start with a component. Every single piece of code that you're writing every piece of css that you're writing you have to create a component first and it really just it kept me basically in my in my views making my actual uis and not jumping back and forth between 
all sorts of different CSS files and just that slow process. Okay, now I need to create another CSS file. Even just the process of creating that new CSS file, including it in and getting it into your build process, it's really like an annoying thing to do. But if you're going full on BEM style, you sort of have no choice but to do that. And we've all gotten used to it. But yeah, I guess I would just say try the utility first approach you know be disgusted that's okay it's totally okay i'm disgusted too but i just love it so it's it's good i think that's the benefit i have you see i i'm already disgusted with the css i'm doing right now so i don't think i can get any worse you know uh, and i think from what i've gathered here if i get around to using tailwind I'm, my understanding should be that any custom css that i write should just go in a shame.css straight away <laughs> there, there is no other css apart from shame css if you're using tailwind right you do write some CSS once in a while for certain really <laughs> random custom things, but they have to earn their right to exist, which is like the opposite of a more traditional workflow where you start by trying to name something that only has one instance of it that exists and you have no idea what parts of it are going to be reused and what parts aren't or what different ways it's going to be reused in to help you sort of decide how it should be named. Like it's so easy to create like a BEM component called like profile card or something and then have something else in the application that's styled almost the exact same way that you're not putting profile information into and all of a sudden it's like, huh, well that name is wrong now or how Mm -hmm. do I solve this problem? Whereas with the utility stuff, it's like I'll just flex this BG gray order this margin b whatever and uh when you have to go and make something that looks the same you copy and paste that whole chunk of html and start changing it and then maybe you do it a third time and it's like oh i'm getting sick of maintaining this and i'm pretty sure that if i change this part of this one i'm going to want to change it on these other two as well and it's very easy then to sort of look at the three and be like what parts of these like are actually linked and what parts aren't and if i put those all into like a list over here well what is the name that i could give to this that would make sense in all three of these cases it just it makes it so much easier to create useful abstractions instead of premature abstractions that end up being wrong my, my favorite is moving a chunk of html and suddenly the style goes away it's, it's not it's not <laughs> yeah. inside the same number of divs as it yeah. was before so now it's broke that, that never happens with that one, <laughs> <laughs> the benefits of cascading it's a lie it's all a lie <laughs> I would say the other kind of uh, interesting thing about uh, utilities is, um, well, something, basically one thing you can run into, I think, when you first look at it is like, well, aren't you going to end up with a whole bunch of utilities that you're never going to use? And it's true. You, you basically start a project with a file that's you know, way bigger than if you just started with a, an empty CSS file. So that's kind of like a criticism. Like, aren't you going to have a whole bunch of wasted CSS files? And, and the more utilities we add, and especially when you start adding some of the modifiers like the responsive modifiers and hover states and and active states and different things like that like your css file can end up getting quite large but there's a tool that i've been using i know a lot of other people have been using with with tailwind called purge css which is a really really cool workflow thing so basically what you do is you only run it when you deploy to production and what it does is it basically looks at all your templates to see what all the different CSS classes that you've used in your project, and it only includes those in your CSS file. So your CSS file ends up being like absolutely tiny because it's only including the utilities that you actually chose to use. And I was like super skeptical about how well that could work because sometimes you're generating, you know, sometimes you apply classes by writing PHP that says, well, if if this, well, then apply this class or 
or maybe you're doing that in Vue or JavaScript or whatever. Um, but the way that that library works and the way you can set it up is actually really, really smart. So on my, my own personal uh, side project, I have, you can also whitelist classes. So if there is some sort of way that they're being generated that you, that purge CSS won't see it, you can whitelist them. My entire, in my entire project, I literally have three, three whitelisted classes. That's it. And purge CSS takes care of the rest. So just a, a cool thing around file size. How, how yeah, do you yeah. how do you determine that you need to whitelist something? Like, that, does it fail in an obvious way, or is it a subtle thing that you're like, wow, wait, that doesn't look quite right in production? No, that's that's the the terrible part of it. You, there is no obvious <laughs> there is no obvious thing. So one of them, like I'm using Turbo Links in one project, and Turbo Links has this uh, um, basically the, this loading graphic that it puts in for you. So there was you know that's being generated by Turbo Links and so purge didn't see that mm. so i had to just i just had to know that yeah um, <laughs> still sounds pretty cool but i was curious if that if there was a way to do that better more easily it would be magical if there was there isn't so that's sort of a gotcha but it's still it's still a really really cool way of of you know keeping your file size small nice yeah yeah i've actually had purge who says like opening a tab for about two or three weeks um <laughs> I, I was going to use it to like, just to try and cl- clean up our old legacy horrible styles or i don't know if anything's been used or not and and then i, I, I ran it and it was it it got rid of loads and i was like oh no it's too much yeah i think it's if you're going to use it I, like i started using purge pretty much like from the get-go on my project so you kind of know in the back of your head well, if I write this wrong, it's going to not include it. Like really the only trick there is to the whole thing is to make sure that that class is somewhere in one of your files and it's like full, as a complete full. string. Yeah. yeah not as a like, complete string. Yeah. concatenating dynamic pieces together. That's right. So yeah. instead of like, you know, concatenating two things together, you maybe just have to be more like, like long form about it. But like, if you know that starting from the beginning of the project, it's literally no problem at all. Because you just you just know that gotcha, and it's not like it's actually inspecting your actual CSS or your actual HTML and looking at the class attribute. All it's doing is looking at the entire file. Well, I guess yeah. there's different ways you can do it, but the way I use it is literally looking at the entire file. And if it's anywhere in the entire file, well, then it's going to get included. And just that is like really really reduces the amount of classes yeah. that get yeah. included. That's like the best Fair part safe. about it is like it's intentionally dumb like it's yeah. not smart about parsing your html looking at the class attribute and splitting stuff up it's literally literally just doing like a regex on the whole file splitting it on spaces and turning that into an array of strings and being like do any of these strings match class names but then we'll keep that class so if you have a heading on your marketing page that says like welcome and you have a class called welcome well it's going to keep that class even if you never use it because it found the string welcome so once you know like how brain dead it is it it actually like makes me personally anyways feel a lot better because i understand like my mental model of like how it works it's so simple it's not like there's any complex stuff there's another tool called purify css that purge css is kind of built as like the successor to and purify css tried to be a lot more intelligent it tried to do like parsing and stuff like that and that's where things get scary to me but if it's just like as dumb as humanly possible then it's uh I don't know. It gives me a lot more confidence that that I can author my files in a way that are like purge CSS friendly because I know exactly what it's going to do to determine whether it keeps those classes or not. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You could literally just not even use the whitelist, and you could just add those classes where needed as comments in your files, and then that would be all it would take. Yeah, something yeah. I've seen other people like do is just create guide. like a like a 
a phantom template that's never actually rendered anywhere in their whole project but lives in their in some directory that's scanned by purge css and you just type out class names into it and that'll that'll be fine so cool right well i'm going to um Go to was it cssstats.io and see how badly my CSS compares with GitLab. Um, <laughs> yes, thanks. cssstats.com actually it looks like. Okay, well, well, we'll link it in the show notes so everybody else can put themselves through that hell. Um, thanks for coming on, guys. It's been a pleasure. Um, good luck with the rest with Tailwind. I'm looking forward to using it. Uh, anything else you wanted to add, Bo? Or is there anything else you you guys wanted to add? <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, if you're interested in checking out the framework, it's at tailwindcss.com. Uh, From there, you can find links to like the GitHub where we have our little discussion forum as well as like the Slack thing if you want to check that out. Um, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, you should, prob- you should probably follow us on Twitter and GitHub too. Yeah, start Definitely. on GitHub even if you don't like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> could always use a few more stars. Nice. Yeah, I um I'm gonna be using it in the, the near future as well. I actually installed it on a brand new Symphony Flex project yesterday. As I mentioned, Webpack Encore, it's all up and running, so um, I'm I'm I have a hello world rendering with the default tailwind background color. This seems to be all the only thing that's different. <laughs> awesome. Nice. Cool. All right. Well thanks again for coming on guys. Uh, we'll call this one a wrap. Cheers, guys. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to That Podcast with Bo and Dave. You can find Bo on Twitter and Google Plus at Bo Simonson and Dave on Twitter at Dave Development. You can subscribe to this podcast and review it on iTunes. If you'd like to review us but don't feel like we've earned five stars, email us so that we can talk about your issues. You can also subscribe to this podcast with RSS from our website, thatpodcast.io. From our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter to get super secret extra content from Bo and Dave sent directly to your inbox. Like the music? You can thank Gorillo for allowing us to sample the track Dust Kingdom for our intro and outro. You can find Dust Kingdom and other tracks by Grillo at grillo.bandcamp.com, spelled G-R-I-L-L-O.